Thank you, Pastor. Let me join the preacher in welcoming you to the midweek service. God bless you for being here. I'm supposing that you already know this, but there's some trends in America right now where people, instead of attending more often, they're attending less. And the Bible said in Hebrews 10:25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We actually need more of this and not less of it, somebody say amen. Anyway, it's a blessing to be here tonight. I always enjoy coming here, appreciate this ministry, appreciate your pastor and the work God's used him to do over the years. I won't take much time for the books tonight, but I have a few copies of Bible Truth for Bible Questions. There's uh, two volumes of it, and uh, there are 275 subjects dealt with there where I bring the subject up, raise many questions, and answer those from the Scripture. And, uh, and a lot of it is uh, subjects you never hear preached on, like cremations, things like, of that nature. This is the most recent book I've just finished out of the 15, uh, Bible Truth for Perilous Times. I only have a couple of copies of that left based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, this is one that God is really using these days, Bible Truth on Calvinism. You might not be aware of this, but Calvinism is invading many good churches these days. It's already ruined quite a number of Bible schools. And... Uh, I read somewhere a while back, I don't know how true it is, I'm assuming it is true because it was based on the polling of the Southern Baptist Convention of their churches and so on. 30% of their pastors now report their churches are Calvinistic and 35% of their seminary graduates are coming out as Calvinists. And it's not just with the Southern Baptists, it's also affecting independent Baptists. And if you know anything about Calvinism, you don't know the basics of it, uh, get this book. It will embolden you against it. That's what you need. It's not written for a Calvinist. It's written for people like you. So that you can read there and find out how bizarre and weird those teachings are of John Calvin. And personally, I don't believe the guy was ever even saved. But anyway, it's going to be kind of uphill tonight. You need to pray for me. Uh, all the smilers just left and went downstairs. And I'm left with the adults. And uh, sometimes that's not good news, you know. But I'll assume it might be tonight. And I need to say to you also that I do appreciate your prayer meeting, your prayer time. Uh, I've been in evangelism for going on 39 years, and I've been in probably 500 churches, more or less. I've been in one church where the midweek service was exclusively a prayer meeting. And I think I know the reason why. They, uh, and they, got, they came together and had prayer, poured out their hearts to the Lord. Uh, no coffee, no Kool-Aid, no cookies, nothing. Just came and poured their hearts out to God and slipped out as they finished and, and so on. And uh, most pastors don't do that because they know that a just prayer meeting, they're going to have le less people present than any other service in the week. That's a bad commentary on Baptist, isn't it? It ought to be the most attended. Amen. By the way, it needs to be especially in these days. We're living in a nation, folks, that's come a long way in a wrong direction. Maybe irretrievable, but we surely need to be praying. Need to be praying. I want to call your attention to Matthew chapter 26 tonight. Matthew chapter 26, it has uh, 75 verses. I'd like to read those. I'm not, though. <laughs> I have not visited this text in quite some time, but I really felt like I should tonight. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 69 through 75. After which, we'll bow our heads and pray and ask God's blessing on the reading of the word tonight and the preaching of it. Matthew 26, verse 69 and following reads like this. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. 
But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. When he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crew, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. With that, let's bow our heads now and pray again. Father in heaven, thank you for meeting with us tonight. Thank you for these that gathered here for this service. And I ask for your blessing on all of us tonight as we open up this passage and enlarge upon it and give the sense of it. Uh, Lord, may our hearts be gripped with the subject that I preach on tonight. May we make some application of it in our lives. And then, Lord, for those who are listening by airstream out there, by, by live stream, rather, I pray that you might minister to them. Uh, there are people out there that are probably members of this church that quit when COVID hit, and they've not been back, and they need to come back. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that people get under conviction of the need of assembling in the Lord's house, because it was, the God, it was God's will that we do that. Pray that we'll have a great day, a great service here tonight, a great service tomorrow night, a great meeting Friday night and Sunday and Sunday night. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you know, a little girl asked her mother once when a preacher took his watch off, you know, you know how these vans take real high with it like this, so everybody will see what they're doing. And the little girl asked her mother, said, Mother, what does that mean? She said, absolutely nothing, honey, absolutely nothing. But I'm going to raise some questions tonight about a, a very unpleasant subject that is called backsliding. I'm preaching on the subject Bible truth on backsliding tonight. Two questions about backsliding. I want to raise those and answer those and just give you somewhat of a backdrop for the sermon in doing that. Uh, first question is this, what is a backslider? And I'm going to answer that from the Bible. It's one who is born again. See, if, you, if your goal is to grow up and be a backslider and you've never been saved, you'll never make it. You have to get saved first. Amen. A backslider, someone's been born again, and uh, thank God for the new birth. I'm glad we have eternal life, aren't you? Not temporary life. We're not on probation. Uh, it's called eternal life. Thank God for it. And that's what the Bible calls it, what Jesus called it. And a matter of fact, in the 1 Peter 1, 23, the Bible said, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Liveth and abideth forever. A backslider, someone who's been born again. Many years ago, there lived a great preacher by the name of George Whitefield, and uh, he was reported to a priest, or reputed to a priest on the subject of being born again more than a thousand times. And someone asked him one time, said, Mr. Whitefield, why are you always preaching on the subject? You must be born again. He said, because you must be born again, and he preached on it again. But he's one who is born again. In addition to that, he is, because of that, he's one who is a child of God. If you're saved, you are, you're not going to be, you are a child of God. The Bible declares in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, that doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. A backslider of someone who is born again, he is a child of God. In addition to that, he is eternally secure in Christ. And uh, say, preacher, where you come up with that? I got it out of the Bible, amen. Uh, you might be encouraged to know that I get nearly all my sermons out of the Bible. My best ones come out of the Scriptures, amen. And 
And the Bible said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I really like the way Jesus said in John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I mentioned the new birth a while ago. Uh, you know, if somebody, there are people that believe they can lose their salvation. And my question to them is this. If you can explain to me how you can reverse a birth, I will listen to you. No power under heaven can reverse a birth. If you're saved, you've been birthed into the family of God. You've been saved, amen, changed forever. In addition to that, a backslider is someone who's walking in the flesh. The Bible declares in Galatians 5, 16, This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You know, our flesh is the greatest liability we have to our spiritual life. And we have to, we, not only do we have to realize that, we have to remain cognizant of it all, the, all day, every single day. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray the inner not to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, by the way, I've used that verse probably a thousand times in my own experience as a Christian, but the very first application was to Simon Peter in that context. Uh, the flesh is weak. And as a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 6, 6 to 3, the flesh profiteth nothing. And, uh, and no, no, no true words in the Bible. But notice in addition that he is one who is subject to chastening. The Bible said in Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are your bastards and not sons. Now, there's an awful lot in that. But I will say this, folks. Uh, if, if we did not have eternal security, by the way, because we have eternal security, chastening's in the Bible, but if we did not have that, God would never have a reason for employing or applying the, the doctrine of chastening. Here's the reason for that, and, and it's rational. In James 2.10, whosoever should keep the whole law and yet offended one point, he is guilty of all. If you could be lost again, one sin would get you lost. And according to Hebrews 12.8, God wouldn't put a finger on you because you wouldn't be his anymore. And if you didn't sin, he'd have no reason to, so he would never have a reason for chastening, the doctrine of chastening in the Bible. But it's in there because Christians have eternal life, and uh, they don't behave themselves, and so God, as a good father, must pay us a visit occasionally. Amen. But notice, secondly, here's another question. What is backsliding? The dictionary definition is to turn gradually from the faith and practice of Christianity. And of course, you can backslide from anything. You maybe have heard the proverbial frog story where someone supposedly threw a frog into a vat of hot water and the frog leaped out and was safe and unharmed. They put the same frog in the same vat filled with lukewarm water and the frog settled in and they turned the heat up underneath, the, underneath that pot and, and the heat came up so, the temperature came up so slowly the, fro the frog became acclimated to the change and after a while it was a boiled frog before he realized what had happened. And uh, I don't know if that's ever happened, but it is a good illustration, illustrating the fact that we don't, we don't backslide by blowout, we, we backslide by slow leak. Uh, nobody serves God up until noon one day, perhaps, and uh, all of a sudden they plunge into sin and lose their testament. That doesn't happen, folks. When someone becomes a backslider, you have to know that something's been going on uh, behind the scenes for quite some time before that became public. 
And, uh, and I could spend some time there. I'm not going to do it. But two, having said that, there are two categories of backsliders. Uh, the first one is, of course, public backsliders. There are six things that characterize a public backslider. First of all, he has ceased to patronize the house of God. Now, I don't care what anybody tells you when, when they're delinquent about the Lord's house and they can be in the Lord's house and uh, you visit them and they tell you they love God as much as anyone, they are not telling you the truth according to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keep them, he that loveth me. And then he said, if a man love me, he will keep my words. Uh, people that lay out of church and been out of church for years, they don't love Jesus because they don't obey his commands. And Jesus makes that very clear. Anyway, they've ceased to patronize the house of God. They've ceased to pray. Amen. They've ceased to pay their tithes. They've ceased to practice their faith. They've ceased to pour over the scriptures. They've ceased to point souls to Christ. Six things characterize a public backslider. But there are also, there's also another category, and that's called the private backslider. The private backslider still publicly resembles a Christian. But they've lost their fire, their fervor, their faith. They've lost their fruitfulness. They've lost their fulfillment. They've lost what makes the Christian life worthwhile down here. And they're just walking along. And uh, listen, they're in every congregation. Uh, they're in all con- They're people that are privately backslidden. There's some here tonight, without a doubt, in a crowd this size. There are people who are privately backslidden down inside. You haven't stopped coming to church. You haven't stopped paying your tithes and so forth. And you'll pray a prayer when you're, when you're called on. And if you really get cornered somewhere, you'll give out a gospel tract. Uh, you know, it's hard to get people to give out tracts these days. You know that? Some people give out a tract something like this. You know, they, they have a tract in their hand back here in their coat pocket. And they look both directions and real carefully and... And uh, they look twice, and then they lay that track down and run for their life, you know. <laughs> but uh, they've lost their fire and fervor. They've lost the unction and urgency. Uh, their private backsliding. By the way, all of us know something about private backsliding. Somebody say amen. I'll tell you when to say amen, so you'll be listening. The Bible said in Hebrews 12, 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against him, lest, we be weird, lest to be weird and faint in your minds. You know what that's really saying to us in relation to what I'm saying here? As long as you live cognizant of what it cost Jesus Christ to save you, you'll never find a human reason to quit on God. However, when you start thinking about what it's costing you to serve him, you'll find some human reason to quit on God. And people do that. And most of us have had some experience in that area. But having said that, I want you to notice four things tonight that I'll send my thoughts around for a few minutes about backsliding. If you're making notes, you might want to write this down. First of all, there is the potential of backsliding. There is the potential. The Bible said in James 1.14, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and when lust hath conceded, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, therefore, my beloved brethren. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's a very... Two very important things to keep in mind about that. One is this, the exceptions are none. I'm no exception. You're no exception. As great a Christian as your pastor is, he's no exception. There are no exceptions. You see, the Bible said in verse 31 of this chapter, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Now, where I came from, all means all, and that's all all means. Amen. And uh, Jesus said, all of you are going to be in this category. Of course, Peter gets the center stage here in this text. But um, Peter was warned because he thought he was an exception, evidently. 
Matter of fact, it was he that said uh, in uh, one of the, uh, twice as a matter of fact, I will never be offended. I will even die for you if necessary. Peter meant that, by the way. He meant that. I believe he really meant that. But Jesus said in relation to that in verse 41 again, watch and pray the inner not of temptation. The spirit of needs willing with the flesh is weak. Who is he saying that to? He's saying it to Christians. Amen. We have to watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. You know why? Flesh. Uh, for just one word, flesh. Amen. We never really have a struggle with that flesh. In the Bible said in Luke 22 and verse 31, the Lord said this to Simon Peter. He said, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. By the way, Satan desires to have every last one of us. And I, I, I hope I'm speaking for all of us when I say this. I love sweet little kids. Don't have any use for brats, but I love sweet little kids. And every time I see one practically, I think Satan wants that child. And I tell the mothers many times at the book table, Satan desires to have your children. Be sure he doesn't get a one. Amen. Because he's working to do it. Peter was warned about that, and you and I have been warned about it. Let me give you some verses. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction, the Holy Spirit before fall. Uh, Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, uh, wherefore let him that thinketh he stand to take heed lest he fall. He's talking to Christians, isn't he? He's talking to people like you and I. Uh, I, um, I read about a pastor once, and I understand this is a true story, that one of his men fell into sin, and of course it broke the pastor's heart as it would any good pastor. He got his men together in a private setting and uh, explained to them as, in much, as much in detail as he should what had happened in this man's life, and he began to ask these men questions. He started on this side, a little half circle of men. Brother, had you been in our brother's place, what do you think you would have done? That brother said, Pastor, I assure you, had I been in his place, I would not have done it. He did. Next man, same question, basically the same answer. Next man, same. All the way on this half circle of men, finally gets to the very last man. He said, brother, had you been in our brother's place, what do you think you would have done? His eyes welled up with tears. His voice began to tremble. He said, pastor, I fear greatly. Had I been in our brother's place, I would have fallen lower than he did. The pastor very wisely said, dear brother, it's you. I want to go with me to visit our brother who has fallen into sin. Because you know why? There are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. You see, the Bible said in Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, you're no exception. Nobody's an exception. A man fell into sin. We'll go out and try to win him back, you know, with love and tears and so forth, realizing that it could have been us. As a matter of fact, let me give you a quote. You know who said this, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Do you know who said that? One of the greatest Christians in 2,000 years. The great apostle Paul said, hey, it could happen to me if I got careless with my flesh. Aren't you glad when Paul talked about the flesh, he never talked down to us. He always talked like and wrote like and spoke like and preached like we're all on the same level when it comes to the flesh. We're all having the same struggles with the flesh. But I said the exceptions are none. May I say the examples are numerous? Many years ago when I was a young preacher, pastoring a church and uh, working a full-time job, I worked for Sears, Roebuck and Company, where satisfaction was guaranteed. Your money was cheerfully refunded. Well, at least it was refunded. 
And uh, I was raised on a tractor seat on a farm in a rural area. I didn't learn to talk to anybody, didn't want to talk to anybody. I was kind of like the fellow that said, the more people I meet, the better I like my dog, amen. And uh, God called me to preach. But I don't want to talk to people. I don't want nobody talking to me. And so God picked me up. The first year I bought farm equipment and tried farming on my own, we had a bad crop. I lost every bit of that. And God put me right out in the middle of a sales floor at Sears Roebuck in Huntsville, Alabama. And you couldn't stare the people with a stick. I had to learn how to talk to people. And I still don't enjoy it, amen. <laughs> my wife could tell you I can ride a half day in the car and not say a word. And we've had some interesting conversations because of it. But anyway, I was, on the, I was working one night and... Um, and I would drop a, a, a word of witness or a little track or a card or something, just not supposed to do it, but I'd do it anyway when I felt like I could uh, to a customer. And this lady was looking at one of the items I was supposed to be selling, and, and uh, she, she, did, she discovered that I was a Christian. And she's a religious person too, not of our persuasion, but a religious person. And so we were talking about that, and, and uh, she learned that I was a Baptist. She was not a Baptist, of course, and... And uh, she said, well, let me ask you, said, uh, do you Baptists believe in backsliding? Now, for her, backsliding means you're lost again. Said, they believe in being born again and again and again and again and again. You know, and we believe in being born again, don't we? But not again and again and again. Anyway, that's what all she knew. And you Baptists believe in backsliding? I, and she was not ready for my answer. I said, ma'am, we not only believe in it, we practice it. Boy, her chin dropped down. She didn't know what to say about that. Could we talk some more, of course? But I said the examples are numerous. Do you know who Lot was? He was a backslider. He's a prim- By the way, you can backslide sitting in front of the hottest pulpit in town. We live with the most godly spouse in town. With the most godly parents in town. Because backsliding is a private matter. It's an individual matter. And uh, there's a good example. He walked in the shadow of the greatest example of righteousness of that era, his uncle Abraham. Looks like that would have helped him, but somehow or another he backslid. But notice Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. You know what the Bible said about him in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2? A choice young man and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier than he. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He would have been voted most likely to succeed. God chose him, said wonderful, commendable things about him. And things went okay for a little while, but then they started going downhill, and it went downhill until he, God, God cut him off. By the way, ultimate chastening is death. God cut him off. And uh, you remember he had that conversation. He had that conversation, and... Um, um, oh. I'm trying to think of the passage. Um, I'm entitled to forget because I'm almost 80, folks. I'm entitled to forget. Anyway, Saul's a great example of that. The Bible said, and by the way, David backslid too. Can you imagine this? God said something about David never said about anyone else. Acts 13, 22, a man after God's own heart. By the way, do you know why David backslid? He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he lived in a body of flesh. He shouldn't have been there. By the way, neither should Bathsheba have been there. (laughs) Amen. Uh, She carries part of the blame in that. But David backslid a man after God's own heart. Can you imagine that? And by the way, you have to credit uh, David with this. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, 
Uh, David was not out there premeditatedly looking for an opportunity to fall into sin. There's nothing in the text that indicates that at all. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it was his fault. But he fell into sin when he wouldn't have because uh, there's no premeditation involved there. There's a difference in that and someone just going out looking for some fun, amen. If you understand what I'm trying to say with that. And, of course, we have Solomon, the wisest of them all. Solomon, it has to be said, folks, Solomon was the wisest man who ever traversed planet Earth. God gave him wisdom exceeding that of any man who had ever lived or ever would live on planet Earth outside Jesus Christ. But you know, Solomon did some dumb things, didn't he? He married 700 wives. That's not very wise. And I'm going to tell you, it goes downhill from there. You've got 700 wives, you've got 700 mother-in-law. You know, I've tried to calculate Solomon's income. He had a fabulous income. And I'm pretty good in math, but I got lost. I could not do it. But with 700 wives and their mothers in a super Walmart close by, they could have broken Solomon up. <laughs> I have to be careful what I say about Walmart when my wife's listening because she patronizes that place. She has a little Toyota Honda. I mean, uh, not Honda, Highlander. And uh, you won't believe this. You can start down 431 and that car headed down toward Walmart, and you turn the steering wheel loose, it turns in all by itself. I don't know how true it is, folks, but I heard a while back there's a Walmart burned down near Atlanta and left 2,500 women homeless. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just telling you what I heard. But listen, it's not just individuals like Lot and Saul and, and uh, David and even Solomon. It was whole churches. Uh, for instance, um, illustration, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we have the little mini epistle written to the Ephesian church, a highly commended church, probably more than any of the others. But right in the middle of that seven-verse context is verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Would you like me to translate that? You're privately backslidden. You've left your first love. You know what a, you know what a public backslider is? That's someone who used to be a private backslider. You know, the private backslider is that someone is going to be a public backslider unless they get it corrected. Anyway, the, the Ephesian church died from the pages of history. There is the potential of backsliding. There's also the process, if you, want, if you want to write that down. Two facts are obvious. Number one, it is the fact that Peter backslid. See, before the fact, the three things impressed me about him. He evidently was a saved individual, if any disciple was. Here's why I say that Acts, excuse me, Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am the Son of Man? And they said, Some say that John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah is one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gave the clearest declaration of faith to any disciple. He did that again in John chapter 6 as well. He is evidently a saved individual. And in addition to that, he must have been and was a, an inner circle disciple. You see, in Matthew chapter 17, in the first eight verses, Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he took with him Peter, James, and John. You know why? They're inner circle disciples. He is not a perimeter disciple, folks. He's not the kind of guy that just shows up when the church has a big feast. And I'm not against that, by the way. If it takes that to get some people to church and get them on the sound of the gospel, that's good. Get them over there. I pastored for 19 years, and we did that. 
Some of the biggest crowds we ever had was when we had our anniversary day, and we'd have 500, as many as 1,200 people one time uh, on an on anniversary day. And whatever we did to get them there was worth it to get them under the sound of the preaching because it gave me exposure to them that I would have never had otherwise. I'm for that. Work. Listen, let me just stop here. You folks have a big day coming up. I learned something. Baptists can get people in church. See, Baptists can talk. I met some Baptists who could sell a farm and milk and machine and take his cow in for a down payment. I met some Baptists, I believe, could talk the devil out of his pitchfork. Well, our people learned they could bring visitors. I, I need to stop and tell you this. Uh, one of the last big days we had before I went into evangelism, I said, now, folks, on this anniversary day, I want us to have a 1,000 people here for Jesus. I said, we're not going to give away anything, and I'm not against that, by the way, but we're not going to give away anything. Uh, we're going to do it for Jesus. And I said, I need 10 people to commit yourself to bring 25 visitors. We got those committed. I need 25 that will commit yourself to bring 10. We got those committed. I need 50 that will commit yourself to bring 5. We get those committed. And I said, now listen, the rest of you don't try to bring anybody. You put all your effort in them being here. <laughs> you know who that's addressed to, don't you? I was sitting on the platform, and listen, there were people standing shoulder to shoulder all around the auditorium. Everywhere you could set a chair, 53 feet of vestibule was full of chairs, quite a lot packed full of people, a 40-feet tent in the back, packed full of people back there. And I'm sitting on the platform. One of the ushers handed me a slip of paper that had 1,200 on it. You'd have thought I would have sprang to my feet and said, Hallelujah, glory to God. I sat there, though, and I got angry because at least 40 more people said they'd be there that didn't show up, and I was angry about it, Amen. <laughs> But here's why I'm telling you that. I'm not telling you that for any reason except this. Uh, you can bring people to church. And I want to tell you this since you brought it up. Uh, in our culture these days, we have a lot more success in getting people converted in the church house under the inspiration of a great meeting where the Spirit of God's in charge of it than we're having just at door to door. Now, I'm not saying we're, not to, not supposed, to, we're supposed to knock on doors until the Lord comes back. But... It's harder to get people. You ask people if they're saved these days, most of them will say, saved from what? They have so far to come. You know what they need? You need to bring your loved ones, your neighbors and your friends, your fellow employees. You need to get them under the sound of good inspirational singing and fellowship of the best people in the world and the preaching of the Word of God. God has a good opportunity to bring conviction on them and bring them to Christ. Anyway, I, I, that was not part of my sermon. I just thought I'd throw that in. There's no charge for that. <laughs> Peter was, uh, Peter was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen, when Jesus went down to Jairus' house in Mark chapter 5, and his little daughter had died by the time he arrived there, uh, he said, uh, she's not dead, she's merely asleep. They laughed him to scorn. He put everybody out except Peter, James, and John. And, uh, and listen, in the garden, when he went a little further, he took Peter and James and, and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter and the, with him a little further. I'm saying that because he is an inner circle disciple. He is a saved individual. And by the way, added to that is this. He is the one who is recorded as audibly swearing that he would never forsake Jesus. Matter of fact, in verse 33, yet will I never be offended, he said. And in verse 35, though I should die with thee, he said. And I believe he meant it. I believe he was serious about it. But it is the fact that the process is involved. Let me just give you some things involved. There was a failure to recognize his own weakness. 
And listen to me, folks. Every one of us have some areas that need shoring up. There's a failure to recognize his own weakness. That's what verse 33 and 35 is about. The Bible said in Proverbs 27, verse 1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Uh, we, we can't say, I would never have done that. You can't really say that because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Anyway, the Bible said in James 1.14, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceded, bringing forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringing forth death. That is written to save people. Amen. <laughs> you know, without Jesus, I just have to labor this thing. Without Jesus, we're nothing, folks. Matter of fact, you remember what he said in John 15.5, Without me, you can do nothing. You remember what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2, if a man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing. You know what it said in Galatians 6, 3, if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And you know what the bottom line of that is? Without Jesus, you can do nothing. You know nothing. You are nothing. One preacher in a camp meeting said, without Jesus, we're nothing but a zero with the rim knocked off. Mighty infinitesimal, amen. The process. There's a failure to recognize his own weakness. There was the fear of man. The Bible said in verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. That included Simon Peter. Uh, Proverbs 29, 35 said, the fear of man bringeth a snare. Now I thought about this having been a pastor myself for a number of years. Uh, the main reason you can't get some people ever to go knock on doors and give out tracts and invite people to church is the fear of man. They won't tell you that. Most people wouldn't tell you that, but that's really the reason. A preacher, we're not like you pastors and evangelists. Uh, we're afraid of, and listen, we're all cut off the same chunk of flesh. All of us are. I remember one afternoon I was knocking on doors in Fort Pierce, Florida. And um, I didn't often go out by myself, but I had to be by myself that afternoon not knocking on doors and and uh, down in South Florida, a lot of the front doors swing out because I think of the blowing rain, you know, and maybe that's the reason they do it, but they swing out. So I knocked on this guy's door, and uh, he swung the door open right in front of me and looked down on me. He was entitled to. He stood about six foot 16. And in no uncertain terms, he wanted to know what I was doing at his house. I started saying, but, 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 I'm looking for Oleander Avenue. But, 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 can, you, can you tell me where it is? And, but I did not said, my name is Gerald Fielder. I pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I wanted to drop by and meet you and your family, find out where you go to church and so on. And uh, our visit didn't last long, but if I told you he was not intimidating, I'd be lying to you. The fear of man's a real thing. I remember when I went into evangelism, the late part of 1983. Um, I went, I'm a, Dr. Charles Keene was preaching a, a stewardship meeting in our church in Fort Pierce. And I had a burden to go into evangelism. And we're sitting in a restaurant one day. And I was, just he and I, and I looked right across the table and I told him about the burden of my heart. And he'd only met me one time before that. And uh, he listened sensitive, you know, very sensitively and very sympathetically. And, and after a while, he looked at me right now and he said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to resign your church and come to Milford. I've been praying for two years for God to give us somebody to work out of our church that we're preaching in any church of any size anywhere. And I'm sitting there thinking, brother, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You don't even know me. <laughs> but he did. I moved from Milford, Ohio, 1,000 miles north. Got a cool reception. It was 20 below zero. <laughs> That's cold, buddy. <laughs> anyway, didn't have one meeting booked. 
Anyway, somebody, he sent a lot of information out and preacher up in upstate part of Michigan heard about me and, and, uh, and somebody told him that Dr. Gerald Fielder is a great soul winner. Now, I, I never disputed that, but I knew it wasn't true, but it sounded so good. I hate to, you know, dispute the thing. And he said, uh, he got in touch with me and said, I want you to come up for a meeting. And I said, well, let's even work out a date. See, I didn't have before opening, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And so we worked out a date. Got up there, and uh, I had some things to learn at that time. He said, uh, Dr. Fielder, I want you to go with me out to visit a man. And uh, so we started out that way, and I'm beginning to s- suspect something. He's taking me out to visit somebody. He's probably already broken the point off everyone's plow that's been out there. And he's probably already shot one evangelist, and they're praying if he'll shoot one more, he'll get on a conviction and get saved. We get out there, and the guy wasn't home. said, did you pray for that? I did not. God said he'd answer before you ask. Anyway, he said, his wife is a faithful member. Let's visit her. So we go in. I think it was kind of a setup because there was an odd chair and one here, here and one over here and then the sofa. And he got the odd chair. She got the odd chair. Brother Fielder got the sofa. And they talked and talked and talked and talked. And the guy pulled up in his driveway and came inside and plopped down right beside of me. <laughs> I, I, I knew I was elected, so I reached in my pocket and got my sword out. I began to talk to him. He's seven to three years old. And I learned he was a Roman Catholic, had been all of his life, and under my breath, I'm thinking he's probably going to stay that way, but I, I told him how to get saved. Would you like to know how to be saved? Yes. I said, you would? I didn't say that. That's what I thought. I told him how to get saved. I said, now, sir, uh, would you be willing to do what God wants you to do in order to be saved and know if you die, you're going to heaven? He said, yes. He got down on his knees, gave his heart to God, came to church, got baptized. I thought I'd finally done something for God until his wife stood up and clapped her hands instead of been praying for him for 23 years. <laughs> but here's where I was going. Went back for another meeting. And uh, the pastor said, Dr. Fielder, he said, I, I want you to go visit a man and one of my deacons is going with you. And I figured that out. He wants to get that deacon knocked off and he doesn't mind sacrificing a good evangelist. And so we go over to the guy's house, knock on his door, and he said, come in. So we go in. Here he is sitting at his kitchen table here, and the entrance and exit's here. I took a seat here. The deacon took a seat over here. And as long as we talked about hunting and fishing and things of that nature, everything went good. But when I began to drop in some things about God, he said, no, I don't want to hear any more about that. And he did it better than I did because he had experience. But I haven't been a pastor for 19 years. I'm hard of hearing. A lot of things go right over my head. I just kept dropping in something about the Lord, you know, and finally he rose up like a giant serpent, leaned across the table, put his finger almost on my nose and said, I hope you go to hell. Now, I've had people suggest it, but I never had anybody insist until then. And then he started prowling through a little table. They had a bunch of articles piled up here. He said, what's he doing? He's looking for a weapon. He's going to try to help me get there. Well, what were you doing? I was helping him look. I knew I'd feel a lot better if I had the gun than I would if he had it. Anyway, he didn't find the gun. And then he ran back. He said, in no uncertain terms, he wanted us out of his house. That deacon came by me so fast, he almost spun me around in my coat. But Brother Fielder doesn't like to be pushed. I learned that pastoring a Baptist church. I, what I'm saying is if I'm at the red light and you're behind me and it turns green, you better not blow your horn. Because if you do, it's going to take us longer to get started. Anyway, uh, after what I begin to feel led,
to navigate toward the door. I finally got to the door and I kind of looked back around and I said, Bill, don't you ever forget this. The Lord loves you. Don't ever forget that, Bill. I got a phone call a few months later and the preacher called and tracked me down. Said, oh, Bill got saved. Man, I went, because I knew if I went back again, I have to visit Bill, you know. And I'm so glad the guy got saved. <laughs> There's the fear of man. There's the man following afar off. By the way, many Christians follow afar off. So what are you talking about, preacher? I'm talking about the fact that if, you've, if your Bible is not interesting anymore, if it's boring to read, if you don't have any prayer life anymore, and you don't go soul winning anymore, and you don't give out tracts anymore, and you're slothful about your church attendance, you're following afar off, privately backslid. It's also the matter of fellowship with the enemies of Christ. You know what the Bible said about this in John 18, 18? And the servants and officers stood there who made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and then it said this, Peter stood with him and them and warmed himself. Have you ever noticed when you get cold spiritually, the world's music is not quite as repulsive as the pastor would have you think it is? And, uh, and those worldly people out there, they're not quite as bad as uh, the impression you gain under a hot sermon sometime or another. Because you get spiritually cold. Fellowship with the enemies of Christ. That's a bad thing. Uh, I wish I could spend more time there. There's also a fierce denial of Christ. Did you notice that's number five in the process? It wasn't number one or two or three. It's number five. Peter would never have done that to start with. And by the way, a lot of saved people, when they get cold on the Lord and they begin to drift away, uh, they would, there's some things they just won't do right now. But if they keep going in that direction, sooner or later they will. And that's what happened to Simon Peter. A denial of Christ. The Bible said in verse 74, Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. Let me tell you what Peter was. Peter was a fierce defender and a fierce denier. When I pastored, every once in a while we get a family come through. A fellow comes in, and man, he is just on fire. I preach on soul winning and he's on the floor challenging everybody to get your lazy carcass out here Thursday night. We're going to knock on some doors and, and boy, he's just on fire. And a 30 day later or six weeks later, nobody knows where he is. You know what they are? They're fierce defenders and fierce deniers. People do that. You know what God needs? He needs consistency. Amen. There's the potential. There's the process. There's the pain. Now, listen, pain results from backsliding. You've heard the expression, sin will carry you further than you ever planned to go, cause you to do more than you ever planned to do, keep you longer than you ever planned to stay. And I've added this, cost you more than you ever planned to pay. I want to read some verses to you. You don't have to look these up. Proverbs 131 said this, Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Proverbs 13:15. The way of transgressors is hard. Um, Psalm 7:15. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. Verse 16, his mischief shall return upon his own head. In chapter 9, verse 16 of Psalm, the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And then going to the New Testament, Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You know, I grew up on a farm like probably several of you did. I knew what it was like to plant corn and so forth, and down south, cotton was our staple crop. 
And uh, I learned to hate cotton, folks. If hating cotton will send you to hell, I'm a hell-bound sinner. But um, every time we planted cotton seed, would you like to guess what happened? Cotton came up. Now, us kids would have been thrilled to death if we had planted cotton seed and corn had come up. But it never happened. Because you reap what you sow. You reap after you sow, and you reap more than you sow, and that is just as true as John 3.16 is. But we'd like it not to be. We hope it isn't, but it is true. And, um, it, and there's an application for it in our lives. Pain of backsliding is far reaching because it's painful for you. Verse 75, then Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which saith unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jeremiah 2.19 says this, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. You know, if a man's will is saved, he can't be comfortable backsliding. Because that's not him. When you get saved, you're not who you were. See, born again means born of the Spirit, born of God, born from above. It also means change from a natural to a spiritual. When you get saved, you are not who you were, and things can never be what they were again. I didn't say you couldn't backslide. I'm saying you can never, they can never be like they were before. God regenerates us, something have you ever noticed that word, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You know, that word regenerate has the word gene in it. When you got saved, you got regene. That's how you, that's how you became a child of God. That's how he became your father. See, he's your father now. Anyway, many mothers and dads weep over their kids. And I'll tell you why some of them do that. They take their kids out of a church where a pastor loved them enough to tell them the truth at the risk of losing their friendship. And they go to a watered-down, weaker church somewhere, and they lose their kids and realize what a horrendous mistake they made, but it's too late now. I've seen that happen, and you have too. Still happens. The Bible said in Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. You know what Lot left? Every morning... He when he got up the rest of his life, he had to realize that his legacy was that he's the father of his own grandchildren. And they're the progenitors of the Moabites and the Ammonites, which are vicious, perpetual enemies of the Israelites. Every day the rest of his life, he had to remember that. Can you imagine what David had to go through thinking about what he had done and the consequences of it, even though he had repented and God had forgiven him? Consequences live. David said, my sin is ever before me. It's painful for you. It's painful for your family. If you don't believe it, check with Achan when you get to heaven. You know what it cost Achan? You know what gold, silver, and clothes in Jericho cost Achan? You know what it cost him? It cost him his wife, his children, and all of his possessions. He lost it all. Died a horrible death at the Vale of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. With David, sin invaded his family, left death in its wake for years to come. But I'm going to add something else to that. It's not only painful for you personally and your family. It's also painful for your Lord. The Bible said in Hebrews 10, The just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And I thought about Jeremiah 3.20. Here's, here's how it goes. Surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have you treacherously departed from me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. Now, what I'm saying by that is this. If... I believe God is saying, if you could get a handle 
on the, the pain a young man goes through when his bride forsakes him for someone else. One of the most terrible pains a young man can ever have is when his bride forsakes him for someone else. I believe God's saying, if you can get a handle on that, then you know how I feel when you forsake me. Surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have you treacherously departed from me, O house of Israel. So I've never thought about Jesus being in pain over my backsliding. He is. He is. Let me close with this. There's not only the potential of backsliding, the process, and the pain. There's the promise. You know what God does? He extends loving and open and forgiving arms to the backslider. Isaiah 1.18 said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Mark 16.7, the Bible said, Jesus said this, Go your way and tell his disciples and Peter. Kind of a little special note there. And Peter. Um, I thought about the prodigal. By the way, have you ever noticed the prodigal son not, did not cease to be called a son all the way through that process? And the Bible said that he was out in the hog pen doing something repulsive to a Jew anyway. And he came to himself. And he said, um, you know, um, I'd be better off as a servant at my father's house. Not even a son, but just a servant than I would be out here. I'm going home. And I'm going to tell my father to just let me be a servant. And this, by the way, this was not a scheme. There's no indication that he meant it. He's repentant. And, and he started home. Before he ever got to that house, someone saw him coming. It was his old dad. I have an idea, though I was not there, that every day since that boy left, that dad looked down that road to see if he's coming back. That's the way fathers are. Amen. One day he saw him coming. And he sprang to his feet without a doubt. Shouted. Bring a ring for his finger. Bring shoes for his feet. Bring a robe for his back. Kill the fatted calf. My son's coming home. We're going to have a party. My son's coming home. That's more like what it's like than it is what the devil says. Well, the devil tells backslidden people all awful things. I thought about a little girl by the name of Jenny, a little Scottish girl. She was the only child, and when she flowered into adulthood, she decided like some young girls do, I want to go to the city and find my fortune there, and she did. As it usually happens, the city wasted her. One day she came to herself. She said, I'm going back home. And she made it up in her mind, if I, when I get there to that little cottage, if the door is latched, I'm going to interpret that to mean that I'm not welcome and I'm going back to the life I've made for myself in this city. All the way home, she had the apprehension that it might be locked and that she might not be welcome. Finally, she drew near to the little cottage. She tried the door. It was unlocked. The light was in the window. She went inside. The mother realized someone was there. When she realized it was her daughter, they hugged and kissed and hugged and kissed and hugged and kissed. And finally the daughter said, Mother, I wanted to come back home. But I had decided if I were to arrive here and the door was latched, I wasn't welcome. I was going back to the life I'd made for myself. 
That mother said, honey, there hasn't been a day or a night passed since you left that the door has, has not been unlatched and a light in the window. That's the way it is with God. I'm going to tell you something. If you got cold on the Lord tonight, you need to use this altar. And coming back is just, a, just, a, just one little step. Amen. The Bible said God's just waiting for you to come back. He wants you to come back. And if we ask him to forgive us, he does. If we confess our sins, he forgives us of our sins. You've been a good audience. You've listened well. I want you to stand. I want someone to come to the instrument. I'm not going to ask you to sing. Someone come to the instrument to play for us. You're in the invitation time. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. I trust the Holy Spirit's used it tonight to be a real challenge to our hearts. And Lord, whether we backslidden or not, that it has challenged us and helped us to be aware and be on guard against that. Pray that there'll be decisions made tonight. Perhaps there's some of these people need to come and pray for someone they know who's gotten cold and gotten away from God. I pray that we'll see people on the altar tonight doing business with God. I pray for that in Jesus' name. While our heads remain bowed and the music is played for us, if God spoke in your heart, the altar is here. You come on, do business with the Lord. That's right, folks. Come on. Come on. You might want to pray for someone you know who's gotten cold and away from the Lord. While folks are praying here and the music continues, I've had my time and this is yours. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? Do you still have a devotional time in your, with your family? If you don't, you need to be in the altar tonight. Asking God for the fortitude and the boldness to start it back. Those kids need to hear their parents pray, read the Bible. Maybe you've stopped having a devotional time for yourself. Listen, folks, we can't go without it. We'll get cold, get indifferent become privately backslidden. While folks are praying down here, there's still time for you. If you would obey the Holy Spirit, what would you do tonight? That's all I would encourage you to do. <clears throat> Father blesses the pastor comes to close the service. How have you led him to do that? I pray. In Jesus' name.